For those who weren't here, we talked about a very, very important subject, which is this new series that we're starting called Not Even a Hint. And the series is based, whoops, the series is based on this verse from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. Read it with me together because my hope is that if we read it together every week and we focus on it, that we can memorize this verse because it's such an important verse. Read it with me. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. What we're talking about in this series called Not Even a Hint is this verse which raises the bar on how most of us live our lives. Most of us live our lives, as I explained last week, with a diet mentality towards impurity and towards lust. The diet mentality is, I know it's bad, so just avoid the big ones, but nibbles here and there aren't that big a deal. That's how most of us view impurity and lust. But God's standard is much, much higher, and our calling is much, much higher. Our calling is not even a hint. Not even the smallest hint should be named among us God's holy people. Why would God set such a high bar and a high standard? Because as we agreed last week, it only takes a little hole to sink a big ship. It only takes a little sin, unrepented for sin, not falling into sin, but unrepented for an unexamined sin to destroy your life, to destroy our church, to destroy your marriage. It doesn't take big things to knock down big buildings. It only takes a little hole in the right place. So what we are going to do is we are going to take this message of not even a hint. And this message, as I said last week, is about sexual immorality, but it's about so much more than sexual immorality. That's why it says, or any kind of impurity. The main idea is that not even a hint of lust. And if you remember last week, I defined lust as any desire that you can't control. That could be a desire for food that you can't control. That's lust here. You could have a desire for information and news about people. There may be a desire, a lust here, okay, to always be in the know. You could have a greed. Um, anything could be a lust. Anything that is a desire that we can't control. And we agreed last week that the, the generation that we live in can be, is characterized by fulfilling of lusts. We live in a very lust-oriented society. If it feels good, do it. All right? There's no one who can tell you not to do anything. If it makes you feel good, you do it. And if you're happy to do that, do that. And if that makes you happy, do that. No one says nothing about anything and whatever makes you happy. Then in the midst of all that, God comes in and says, actually, you shouldn't do that. And actually, you shouldn't just like not do any, like a lot of it. You shouldn't just be like really good at it. You shouldn't even shoot for 99%. You shoot for not even a hint. Why? Because like I said, God is trying to save our lives, to save our marriages, to save our church, to be glorified through us because he knows that it doesn't take much to destroy us. You know, y'all know who Tim Tebow is, right? All right, Tim Tebow is a quarterback for the New York Jets, backup quarterback for the New York Jets, but he's a big celebrity star because he's like a very outspoken Christian. Tim Tebow's a good guy. All right, not saying that I know him or anything like that, but you can tell who's the real deal and who's just doing it for show. He's the real deal, like he's a good guy. You know, Tim Tebow, this is to show you how sick and wicked a world that we live in. There was like these, this contest, and I'm sure there was more than one, but this is the one that at least came to my attention in my inbox, about like these media people who are putting this out there about, I don't know, like $50 million, or I don't know, I made up that number, whatever a million dollars to any girl who can get Tim Tebow to sleep with her. Any girl who can convince Tim Tebow to sleep with her and tell the story to the newspaper, they'll give uh, 50 million is probably too much. A million dollars, $50,000, whatever it is. Why? Because if Tim Tebow stands up here and says 500 messages about abstinence and 5,000 messages about living pure, and then one person has one example of where he didn't, which of the two will be more powerful? Which of the two will people remember? That's why God says, not even a hint. Because the one can destroy the 500. 500 messages over your life can be destroyed by one funny girl just trying to get some funny money from the funny media. Will it be easy to live up to the standard of not even a hint? Absolutely not. But you know what? You know what's going to make it, I don't want to say easier, 
but will make it more likely we're going to succeed, we're not going to do it alone. We're going to do it together. And we are going to lock arms and we are going to march. And we're going to march together. And no one is going to be in front of the other because all of us are at zero when it comes to this ability to live not even a hint. No one is further ahead than the other. We're all at the same point. We all have lusts that we cannot control. They may be different. You may be in a different lust than me. But that doesn't mean that any of us is any different. We just have different lusts that are controlling us. We're going to lock arms and we're going to fight together. We're going to encourage each other. We're going to pray for each other. We're going to hold each other accountable. I really believe that you on your own, you can't do this. But if we lock arms together as a church body, as a family, and say, you know what, for these next eight weeks we're, or seven weeks now, we're going to focus on this. We're going to pray about this. We're going to discuss this. We're going to hold each other accountable to this. I'm not saying we're all going to be perfect. But I'm saying that if we go together, we'll be much, much more effective and stronger and more likely to succeed than anyone by himself. That's why I'm encouraged about this series. Because what this series is going to be is a chance for you to do what you know you need to do and me to do what I know I need to do. But I never had the motivation when I'm by myself and neither do you. This is exactly like when everyone in the office says, okay, you know what, we're going to go on this diet together so that we can do whatever and we go on it together. There's, there's motivation in numbers. There's strength in numbers. And that's what we're going to do. I've been living impure my whole life, but I'm going to do it now. I haven't had any control of this lust for years, but you know what? Let's do it together. We're going to pursue holiness together, pursue God's standard. And I hope you'll join for the ride. I know God will help us because it's his will that we live a life of not even a hint. And I know that if we do our best, God will help us. Now let's jump in to our topic here for today. After last week, motivational, not even a hint, let's go. Everyone came back and said, okay, let's go. What do we do? Let's do this. Let's stop this. Let's, what do we do? What do we do? Everyone's ready to run out there and kind of uh, run into the war and just kind of, ah! The, the image in my mind is Braveheart. Okay, all of us became Braveheart. Like, all right, here we go. Let's go fight something. Let's go knock down something. And we don't know what we're doing. So before we run and start just firing away, what we are going to do today is we are going to look at the weapons of this war. Because too often what happens is we hear this verse, not even hint, we get motivated, we run out there, and then we realize that we are severely undermatched in this war. And we run out there with our little dinky little thing, and we run out there, and the enemy has got all kinds of weapons just waiting for us to knock us down. So we're not going brave hard today. We're going to take a step back. We're not ready to hit the front lines yet. We're not. Today we're in the war room. Today we're in the meeting room. Today we're coming up with a strategy. Once we come up with a strategy, and we need to understand the weapons that he has and the weapons that we had. The weapons that he has, the enemy, and the weapons that we have. We need to understand what the attack is going to look like. And then we need to understand what is in our arsenal. You know in every James Bond movie, before he goes out, he goes and meets with Q. And then Q tells him, like, you know, this is new belt, and this belt, you know, fires zip line from this side. You know, and this watch can, you know... Right, like whatever. That's what we're doing here today. We're gonna meet with our Q, all right? Which, which God, okay? The Bible, okay? <laughs> and we are going to discover what is in our arsenal and in the enemy's arsenal. Let's start with the enemy, the bad guy. I said that last week. His arsenal is lust, and we defined lust as any desire that you can't control. That's the definition that we gave last week. But I want to clarify something. There's two parts to this definition. There's two parts of what lust is. Lust is a desire, and it's a desire that you can't control. So I want to clarify something before we get in any further. There's two parts of this definition. One is sin and one is not sin. What is not sin is any desire. What is sin is that you can't control. What I mean by that, it is so important that you understand that having desires is not bad. Having desires is not sinful. Even sexual desires and urges is not bad. What's bad is the not ability to control them. This is so important because if you don't understand this concept, what's going to happen is we're all going to make mistakes. There's no one here who's going to walk out of here and start batting a thousand. You're going to make mistakes and you're going to be filled with guilt and shame. Shame is bad. Guilt is bad. 
But they're especially bad when they're over the wrong thing. Like you should feel remorse when you fall into sin. But you want to make sure that if you are remorseful, you're remorseful over the right thing. You do not need to apologize for having desires. Greed, let's say. Greed is bad. But the desire from, for security for my wife and my kids is not a bad thing. It's called responsibility. It's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. The desire for a man, sexual desires to be with a woman, that's a good thing. That's not something that's bad. It's something that was put inside us by God and vice versa for a woman to be with a man. These are not bad things. The bad part is when we can't control them. Your sexual desires are no more bad than your hunger desires. Can you say when you're on a, it's bad to be hungry? It's not bad to be hungry. It's normal to be hungry. It's bad what you do based on that hunger. And if you gorge yourself silly at the old country buffet, that's bad. But if I drive by old country and, and I get a smell, yeah, I mean, that does stuff to your system. Okay? It's not bad to have the desire. It's bad that you can't control the desire. The desire came from God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Who created our sexuality? Our sexuality is the thing that God created more than anything else. It doesn't say he made them doctor and engineer. It doesn't say that he made them short and tall. It doesn't say that he made them rich and poor. Our defining characteristic that God made in us is our sexuality. We don't need to apologize for that. And then look what God does. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. It was commanded to be fruitful and multiply. This is the joke is the only commandment that man has ever kept without breaking is this one, filling the earth. Okay, we've done this. So anyone who says we don't keep God's commandments, we've done this one. Right? We've been very, very fruitful. We haven't done much else, but we've done this. But I'm saying when God gave us this command, he gave us the desire inside to fulfill the command because he knew we might get lazy or TV might be good. All right. So God said in order for you to actually fulfill this command, I'm going to put the desire inside you and put some feelings inside you that sometimes get elicited when a pretty looking girl walks in or a nice looking guy walks in. It's not bad. You don't need to stop being human to be pleasing to God. I can't emphasize that enough. Because there's this idea out there that being godly is something like people from the moon. All right? These weird people that come out of, of, like, of a box that are called spiritual people. Okay? And they come out of a box. They don't say anything bad. They don't watch anything bad. They don't think anything bad. They're spiritual people. And I can never live up to one of those people. That's not it. That's not how God created us. And if you think about it, when God created us and put that sexual desire in us, and I'm, just like I said at the, last week, I'm talking about lust in general, but I'll talk a lot about the sexual area because I think that is a big one for us, but it applies in any area. Like I said, it applies to greed. It can apply for like, like a, a, a sense of security. It could apply to anything, any area that you can't control. When God put that drive inside of us, he knew that it would be very difficult to control. He knew that there would be many times where that drive would control us instead of us controlling that drive. He knew, and yet he still put it in there. That shows that you don't need to get rid of the drive or the desire. Okay, so then what should I, what should I do? Let me give you a piece of advice that is so simple, but it is so profound in its simplicity. The smallest piece of advice and if you do this one thing, I guarantee you, you will make huge strides in your ability to not live a not even a hint kind of a life. To stop some of those lusts that are, that are taking you down. Simple. Talk to God when the desire comes. It's not very deep, but it is so profound. And notice I didn't even put pray. Because if I put the word pray, you would make it into something that it's not something ritualistic or legalistic. I'm not even saying pray. I'm saying talk to God when the desire arises. Usually we think the desire is bad and once it comes, I can't talk to God because I'm ashamed of the desire. It's like what Adam and Eve when they were hiding from God. Why? You don't need to be ashamed of the desire. God put the desire. And instead of being ashamed of it, take it to God and say, God, I have this right now. Like, I give it to you. Like, for example, for example, I wrote down here some potential 
prayers that, or talkings that you could do here to God. Thank you, God, when you feel tempted. Thank you, God, for making me a sexual creature with sexual desires. Please don't remove these desires, but help me to please you with these desires. That's not very hard. I'm not saying pray, and I'm not saying, I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying when the desire comes, just lift your heart to God and say, God, this isn't bad, and I know you're not ashamed of me, and I know you still love me, and I know you put this here. Help me to use this to please you. God, I know that you made me for true and lasting pleasure. Help me to trust that at this moment and to forego the short term so that I can have the long term with you. Another one. God, right now I'm tempted to look to my lust for comfort. Please help me to find comfort in you. Short little talkings. Short little just... I'm not saying that I'm, I'm like praying for hours on end. All I'm saying is, God, I feel tempted right now. Help me. Do you see how if you do something so simple, it can transform your battle with lust? Now, it's not God is over there. This is how sometimes we think. God, God is up there, up in heaven with a, a judge stick. Judge stick. Okay, to say like, okay, hmm, sinned, guilty, sinned, guilty. So that way, when we feel tempted, we're like, oh no, he's going to see me. So we can't go to him and hide, and then we just try our best not to fall. But we're on our own, this is inevitable, we're going to fall. That's not how God is. God is saying, I know, I know it's going to be hard. I created you with it. I created you with the desire. I know it's going to be hard. Don't cut me out of the process. I created you with this, but I also created you to have me helping you with this. And the reason why you can't overcome this is because you're trying to do it without me. Stop looking at lust as, I just have to stop having this desire. And start looking at it as, God, help me to just get through this one minute and give you this desire. Now I'll show you a nice verse from Hebrews chapter 4, verse, Hebrews 2, verse 14 to 18. Inasmuch, this verse talks about how Christ doesn't just stand up in heaven like, when God wanted to save us, when God wanted to save us from slavery to sin and lust, He didn't stand up in heaven and say, stop that, stop that, and stop that. What's wrong with you? He didn't do that. That's what we think sometimes. He stands up there and says, what's wrong with you? That's not what He did. This verse says about how He came down and entered our humanity so that He could lift us up to His divinity. He came down, came with us, picked us up, and took Him back. He didn't yell from there. He came down. That's what it says. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. That's us. Gets more even specific. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. That's us that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is also he is able to aid those who are tempted. If Adam and Eve had known this, you think the story might have ended differently? Eve devil comes says I'm going to give you this knowledge if Eve had just realized that the desire to have knowledge wasn't a bad desire because God created it and God didn't create bad stuff the desire wasn't bad if Eve would have just lifted up her eyes to God and said God I really want to have this right now and he's tempting me to have it I really want this right now can I have it? should I? like if she had just lifted up her eyes up and said, instead of being ashamed and saying, oh, I know God doesn't want me to have this. So that shame, that misplaced shame and guilt is what did her in. And it's what does in us in all the time. Lust is not a bad desire. Lust is a good desire gone bad. Our desires were given to us by God so that we could give them back to Him. And I want to flip your way of viewing the temptation that comes to you. Instead of, I'm tempted, bad things, shame and guilt. 
I'm going to view the temptation as an opportunity. As an opportunity for me to give this desire back to God. He's like us. He's been tempted like us. He's gone through all the same desires as us. And he's gone through all those things. And now here I am, God, in this time. And instead of being away from you and hiding from you, I'm going to say, God, I'm really tempted right now. Can you help me? And then you know what you've done there? Not only did you not fall, you actually passed the test. Did you know that? Not only did you not down, you actually took a step up. The enemy of the evil one is lust. I'm sorry. The weapon of the evil one is lust. A desire that you can't control. A desire, good, gone bad, by him. Let's flip now and go to our side. And let's talk now about our weaponry. Alright? And of course, when we talk about the weapons on our side, on the spiritual side, okay, prayer. Okay, yes. Uh, Bible, yes. Fasting, that's the best. Church, excellent. Um, any sermon by Boone Anthony. Yeah, absolutely, those are the best. Yeah. Okay, those are great. Those are fantastic. But I want to pull out the big bazooka now. I want to pull out the secret weapon. Because we oftentimes fiddle with these little six shooters. Okay, and the little six shooters can win a war here and there, or battle here and there. But I want to pull out the big bazooka guy. The secret weapon. This secret weapon, if you don't understand it, and you don't get this right, everything else that we talk about for the next, for a, we talk about it for a hundred weeks, it's not going to do you any good. If you remember last week, I talked about how we have the wrong standard and we have the wrong source of power. Remember that? I said how we want to change, but we have the wrong power source. Now I'm going to talk about the big bazooka power source. And yes, you're going to need to put some little six shooters underneath it, but if you don't understand the big bazooka, good luck. You're not, you're not have any, any, any luck in this, in this war. What's the big bazooka? What I'm going to do, I think I've already given you the answer when I gave my little announcement, okay? But let's take a step back. I want to go to a reading that we read earlier today in the liturgy, which is the Acts of the Apostles came from Acts chapter 7. And I want to go to the story of Moses, which appears in Acts chapter 7, all right? First of all, just as a little trivia, why is the story of Moses in Acts chapter 7? Anyone think about that? You wouldn't expect Moses to be in Acts. Acts is New Testament. Moses was one of the oldest guys. Why? Very good. Because Acts 7 is the speech that was given by St. Stephen before he was martyred, before he was killed. And in his speech, he recounted the entire history of Israel, and he said all this kinds of great stuff, stuff that scholars still learn from this day. So that's why Moses is in Acts chapter 7. So actually, what we read in Acts 7 is more detailed than what we read in, in, in Exodus chapter 2 and 3, believe it or not. So that's why. Just so anyone doesn't think that I'm making up stuff, Moses and Acts, okay. A little context to the story. By this point in time, we're going to talk about the scene where God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. By this point in time, Moses and the Israelites have been captive to the big, bad, scary Egyptians for 400 years. They were slaves. They hated their lives. They wanted to escape. And surely, many times in those 400 years, they said, you know what? Let's get out of here. And let's do this. And then they tried. And then the big, bad, scary Egyptians squashed them like a bug. And that when you try to rebel and you get shot down, you become further enslaved. And then maybe another hundred years later passed and they forgot that. And three or four more guys, you know, saw, um, you know, uh, what was that? Uh, Shawshank Redemption movie. All right. So they said, you know what? We can do Shawshank on them. All right. So we're going to, and this, and then they got caught and they got squashed down as well. And then all the word went around. Hey, don't try to escape. If you try to escape, you're going to get killed even further. And then for year after year after year, they thought about it. But people told them, hey, it's not even worth trying. You can't escape this slavery. You're a slave forever. Just accept it. Enjoy the food. Just do your best. Don't try to escape. You can't escape. And then we pick up the story of God appearing to him in Acts chapter, in, it's in Exodus 3, but spoken about in Acts chapter 7. And this is what God says. 
Now, when he was 40 years old, speaking about Moses, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. Moses, at age 40 years old, okay, the burning bush happened to Moses at age 80. But at age 40, Moses got an idea, just like I said, of we can lead the people out of here. We can escape. Guys, we don't need to be weak. We can do this. We can, we, we, we can do it. We can do it. And Moses was passionate about it. But the problem was, Moses had a good idea, but the problem was he didn't have the right source of power behind it to accomplish it. So what did Moses do? Next verse. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. What happened? Moses goes out in the street, Egyptian guy fighting with a Hebrew guy. He says, okay, we're going to take these Egyptian guys down one at a time. So he takes this guy down. Problem is, there's millions and millions and millions of them. So this idea of, I'm going to take them down one at a time, like, this is not going to work unless it becomes exponential. Right? This is not going to work in a, in, a, in a one plus one plus one kind of a way. So Moses tried. And then he said, you know what? And if this guy's now with me, then we can kill two guys. And we get another two, and we can kill four or five. But there's millions upon millions upon millions. Moses, right idea, but wrong way of accomplishing. Wrong source of power. That's why it didn't go very well for Moses. Moses goes out after he killed the guy. And he says, okay, guys, we're going to kill more. And they said, no, thank you, buddy. We don't want to do that because they're more than us. You're on your own, man. You're not with us or them. We have nothing to do with you. So what happened to Moses? Moses ended up fleeing from Egypt. And he went, verse 29, Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. I don't want to do a Bible study about Moses. What does it mean when he fled, he dwelt in Midian, and he had two sons? What does that mean? It means that he settled himself. Settled. And then maybe every now and then he'd say, someone would say, hey, you think we can ever defeat those Israelites? I mean, those Egyptians? Hey, that was back in the day we thought about that stuff, but now, we're old now. We've been living as slaves for years, like I was back in the day. And maybe his, one of his young buck little kids said, hey daddy, we can go out there and fight the bad guys. Hey, settle down there, buddy. Pull up a chair, enjoy the desert. All right, we're not going nowhere. That's us, that's us. Isn't that us? I'm going to defeat this lust. And I'm going to fight. And I'm going to, and I'm going to, and I'm going to. And then we fall. And then maybe we get the courage to try again. And then we fall. And then again. And then after two or three times, hey, when in Rome? Why fight? And then someone comes and says, hey, we should fight this. Hey, that's nice. We tried that back many years ago. That's good. You have some kind of zeal. You'll fall and you'll be sitting on the couch with me soon too. And not only we are discouraged, we discourage others. Not only we're miserable, we want everyone else to be miserable. Someone is hopeful, no, 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 come sit next to me. Come have a kid or two, okay? Come have kids. Because discouragement loves company. We've all been there before. You set out to, you, you idealistic, you're enthusiastic, but the devil just beats you down. I, I have this theory. The devil actually wants you he wants you to try with the six-shooter. He wants you to. Like he'll be the one encouraging you to say, yeah, you know what? You can do it. Do it. You can do it. You can do it. You can do it. He wants you. Why? Because if he can get you to try and fail, you just further sunk further. You have, and then you, he knows you're going to be more and more discouraged and you're less likely to even try. We've all been there many times. Moses, here's the truth is that you can't win. Moses, you can't win. Can Moses win? Like, can Moses win? Can anyone think of a plan how Moses can win? Moses can't win. No matter how hard he tries, no matter how strong he is, how smart he is, no, ma no matter. He can't win. You can't win. But God can win. That's where the story goes on. This is now where, where God appears to Moses in the bush and he says, Moses, we're going to do this. And Moses' first answer was, exactly like I said, like, yeah, right, God. Come talk. I'm an I'm a old man now. I'm 80 years old. 80-year-old people don't usually start revolutions. All right? They usually retire. 
But now you tell me to start a revolution? Yeah, yeah, right. And God says to him, I am the God of your fathers. I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. What key word does God emphasize here? I. I will. I am. You are nothing and you are a failure. Yes, but I am God. God, we can't. Yes, you're right, you can't. But I can. God, how can I? You're right, you can't. But ask me how I can. I'm God of Abraham, I'm God of Isaac, I'm God of Jacob. I'm God of big stuff. Getting out of Egypt for Moses was an impossible job. Like, think about it. How about this? I'll give you Moses. Okay, Moses, I'll give you the ten plagues. I'll give them to you. I'll give you that you could somehow do some plagues. You did some magic, okay? You got some mirrors, okay, to do some stuff. You bought a bag of bees and locusts. I'll give it to you. I'll give you that you had enough resources that you could make the locusts, that you could pour enough ketchup into the river that you could make it look like blood. I'll give it to you. Even though it's impossible, I'll give it to you. And I'll throw on top of that, you even take down the firstborn of all of them. I'll give you that. You got all that. Now you're running and you're in the middle of the, of, the, of the wilderness. You got mountains to the left, you got mountains to the right, you got bad guys behind you with horses and weapons, you got nothing. You got a river in front of you. What do you do? Okay, I'll give you more time. Take a week, two weeks. I'll pause them for three weeks. Go ahead, part the Red Sea. I'll tell you what, you need time, I'll, you need, I'll give you on top of time, I'll give you money. Here's $10 billion, here you go, take it. You need technology, take our iPads, take whatever you want. I'll give you all the money, I'll give you all the technology, I'll give you all the time, I'll hold these guys back for a week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, six weeks. Go ahead, what you got? Any amount of time that Moses could solve the Red Sea issue? Any amount of technology that could solve the Red Sea issue? Any amount of money that could solve the Red Sea issue? Uh-uh. The principle that many of us have learned is that when you're drowning, a drowning person can't save himself no matter how hard he tries. A drowning person can't save himself no matter how hard he tries. If you're rich and you have all the money in the world and I throw you in the middle of the ocean, the ocean doesn't care how much money you have. You have all the, the servants and technology, it's your, that's fine. I throw you in the middle of the ocean, you got nothing. We have tried to defeat our lusts by reading more books. We've tried by saying more prayers. We've tried by um, getting an accountability partner. We've tried, we've tried, we've tried, we've tried, we've tried. And the more we tried, the more we failed. Why? Because Moses, there's nothing you can do to part the Red Sea. Nothing. No amount of effort. Like, it's not like if you would just try a little bit harder, you can hold it back. Or, there's no, there's nothing. Either God parts it, or you die. Agreed? There's no other option there. Either God parts it, or you die. Either God delivers us, or we remain slaves. There's no other option. If I told you, as I'm looking at this, jump over this podium, you think you could jump over it? Okay, some people are saying yes. I would say the vast majority of you no. Okay, no offense. Okay, but just like don't take it personally. But no, I, I don't think I could either. At least not well without injuring myself. Okay. But then you know what? To be honest, all of you, if I say jump over this podium, and this will be like the greatest thing that you ever do, and you'll have ten million dollars, you could train, you could like practice. You could like shed a few pounds or you could do some stuff to give you a decent shot at least being able to attempt it, right? You could at least have a shot. But if I said, jump over the Hilton, right over the top of it, then it's like, it doesn't matter if you're taller than me or shorter than me, if you're faster than me or slower than me, or if you're thinner than me, then fatter than me. It doesn't matter because all of us, none of us can jump over the Hilton. Like that's an impossible task. 
Defeating lust is an impossible task. Defeating your lust, we treat it like jumping over the podium. No, if I shed a few more, no. And then we try and we hurl ourselves over and we trip and we break stuff. We end up wearing one of these for eight weeks. <laughs> Defeating your lust, what you have been fighting for years, is more similar to jumping over the Hilton than it is jumping over this podium. That's real encouraging, isn't it? That's an encouragement, isn't it? That's the most encouraging news you've ever heard. That's the most encouraging news you've ever heard. Because what I discovered is, is that there is somebody out there who's pretty good at saving drowning people. He's pretty good at being a savior. It's actually his title. It's actually his name. You know, in the, old, in the Bible, they used to name people after their job. So they would name you based on who you were. So I said, for this person, let's name him Lifeguard. That's what Jesus' name is, is Lifeguard. His name is Savior, because he saves. That's his specialty. And the tool, I said weapon earlier, but the tool which he uses, his life vest or raft thing, is something called grace. Look at this passage. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 through 16. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, rest your hope fully upon the, grace of, upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. In this passage, if I remove verse 13, which is the top one, and I start as obedient children, I say, don't fall into your lust. Be holy. Stop being ignorant. And stop doing those foolish things. You'd say, yes, I need to try very hard. And I say, okay, you know what? Verse 13, I'm going to tell you how to do it. Verse 14 and 15 and 16, I told you what to do. Verse 13, I tell you how to do it. What's the how? What's the secret weapon of God? What is the weapon upon which we will rest all of our hope upon it? It is. It is. Grace of God. That's an important one you may want to write down. I don't know if I left a blank there, but write that one down. Is the grace, or circle it, or underline it, or star it, or, or, or tattoo it on your forehead for all I cared. But remember it, that the secret weapon, the bazooka, in the battle against lust, is the grace of God. How is that our weapon? Logic says that grace is actually negative for fighting against lust. That's what logic says. And that's what we used to, that's what, you know, unfortunately, that's sometimes what parents do to kids, is no, don't tell them about grace or else they'll do bad stuff. Okay? Don't tell them about grace. And I guarantee you, okay, if you were raised in the church, I'm telling you, I remember when I was probably, I was probably like age 22, 23, and I heard a sermon about grace. And I was like, what's that? I never heard of that before. What's grace? You mean the before meal thing? We have a whole talk about before, like what do we do before meal? It's rub a dub dub, thanks for the grub. Like, why is that going to warrant a whole talk? I never heard of it. We never learned about grace. Grace was something that we never talked about because the mentality is, no, if you tell them about forgiveness and grace, they'll just do more bad stuff. Don't tell them. How does grace encourage me to not sin and fall into lust? I'm telling you, not only grace will encourage you, grace is your only hope. And if you don't understand grace, and you don't rest your hope halfway upon the... I mean, rest your hope a lot. I mean, rest your hope fully on the grace, you're in trouble. All right, I'm going to say this sentence, and this is not a theological sentence. I'll say it, and then I'll try to explain it. Key point for today. Our standing is not the same as our sanctification. Write that down and I'll explain. Critical point. I'm not speaking theology, I'm speaking real life. Our standing is not the same as our sanctification. One of the two is an ongoing process which began long, 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 long before you can even remember and it will continue until the day that you die and leave here. 
And that's the process of our sanctification or our purification or our process of becoming like Christ. That's something that started. Spirit of God came upon you. You were baptized. Spirit of God, okay, and there you are. You're reading. You're praying. You're doing things that you may slip and fall. But this is a lifetime process of becoming pure as he is pure, becoming holy as he is holy, becoming loving as he is loving, becoming kind as he is kind, becoming wise as he is wise. All those things, becoming like Christ, that's a lifetime process. That doesn't have nothing to do with your standing in God. That doesn't have nothing to do with your standing in God. What does that mean? Let's read a couple of verses here. Romans 3, 23 to 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. A few verses later. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. What that means, when I say our standing is not the same as our sanctification, means we are God's children whom He has justified freely. Right here. Justified freely by His grace. You're my child. That's it. Forever you're my child. That's it. Now that you're my child, I want you to grow in holiness. But the fact that you're struggling over here doesn't negate that you're my child. Two different things. Two completely separate things. You're my child. No one can snatch you out of my hands. You're, you're, you're my, your name is engraved on the palm of my hand. You're mine forever and ever and ever. I have loved you with an everlasting love. That's one thing. That's our standing in God. Then the second one is, now that you're my child, I want you to work on holiness. I want you to work on purity. I want you to work on these lusts. And sometimes you'll slip, and sometimes you'll do good, and sometimes you'll waver. But I want you to go this way. But that doesn't have nothing to do with this. Our problem is we think that because we slipped here that we lost this. That doesn't have nothing to do with this. That is that. This is this. <clears throat> I'll show you a quote from one of the church fathers, St. Cyril of Alexandria. He said this. He said, for truly, the compassion from the Father is Christ. Talking about God's compassion for us equals Jesus Christ, His Son. As He takes away the sins, He dismisses the charges and justifies by faith and recovers the lost and makes them stronger than death. For what is good and He does not give. For by Him and in Him we have known the Father and we have become rich in the justification by faith. What that's saying right there is that your standing is not based on what you are doing, but based on what He has already done. Your sanctification, that you're doing is part of that. But that doesn't have nothing to do with your standing. Your standing is based on what He has already done. Best example. Give me a practical, realistic example. Best, I don't know if this movie was made as a spiritual movie, but it's the most spiritual movie of all time. Little Orphan Annie. Okay? Y'all know Little Orphan Annie. Little Orphan Annie teaches us that we don't grow in holiness to be accepted, but rather because we are already accepted. We don't grow in holiness to be accepted, but because we are already accepted. Let's go to the story of St. Little Orphan Annie. In the story, y'all know it. Actually, wait a minute. A lot of you are young. How many of you do not have not seen Little Orphan Annie? Oh my goodness. Really? And there's some of you who are older than me. Wow. You got to go see it. It's a very uplifting movie. Okay? It's very, very powerful. It's about a rich man named Big Daddy Warbucks. Okay? We have a Big Daddy Warbucks in the sky who's rich and has everything. And then it's about a little girl named Little Orphan Annie who is, forgive my expression, she's worthless. She provides no value to Big Daddy Warbucks in any way. Disagree with me? She provides no value. He has everything. He doesn't need her. She provides no value. He adopts her, and he basically says, you're my kid now. And now that you're my kid, I expect you to do this, and to do this, and to do this. You're not doing that to become my kid. You're doing that because you are my kid. We're the same way with God. God says, you're my kid. And now that you're my kid, there are certain standards for living in this house and being having my last name on you. I'm not saying I'm going to take my name away from you if you don't do it. Because once I put my name on you, like my kid, his name is Michael Messer. He's Michael Messer for life. All right. The girl, she may change at marriage, okay. But the boy, not going to change. 
No, I'm not being proud. That's the facts of life. She's going to change her name, right? But the boy will never change his name. The boy will never change his name. He's Michael Messer for life. We're connected for life. He always walks around with my name. It's not like he's going to be bad and not clean his room and I say, give me your last name, okay? Take, you know, your mother's last name. <laughs> Just joking. Just joking. Just joking, okay? She has my last name too, okay? So we all together. I was just joking. I was just joking. Once he's got my name, he's got my name. And if I adopt you in my family and I give you my name, you got my name. But now that you got my name, I may do like this and tell you to live up to my name. But I'm never going to take my name away. Clean your room, boy. Pick up your laundry, boy. Do the dishes, boy. But that doesn't take away my name. The grace of God is the same way. We don't grow in holiness to be accepted. We grow in holiness because we're already accepted. We don't fight lust so that God will accept us. We fight lust because He already has accepted us. We don't love Him. He loved us and then we loved Him. All right? We love Him because He first loved us what the Bible says. And we grow in holiness not out of duty, not out of obligation, not out of it's the right thing. We do it because He loved us so much. And he gave us everything. And then he comes and says, now this is what I want for you. Do you see the difference? The difference is so big. Because you're going to mess up. You're going to mess up. And if the devil can convince you, I'm telling you, listen to me carefully on this one. The devil would love to convince you, God loves you because you're good. If the devil can convince you, you're good, God loves you because you are good, He will destroy your life. You know why? Because your goodness isn't going to last forever. And your goodness is going to turn to badness. And if I can convince you, if good, then love. If good, then love. If bad, then you fill in the blank. If I can convince you, if good, then love. And then I get you to fill in the blank of bad here. You don't need to be a rocket scientist to figure out that if-then statement. Too many of us think that becoming holy is what makes us acceptable before God. I'm telling you that it's not. It's being acceptable before God that makes us holy and gives us the ability to pursue holiness and to strive for it, knowing that this process which started will not end till the day we die. But we're going to fight our hardest to get there. And along the way, we're going to have slips and falls. We're never going to reach a point in time where we can say, we're going to fight though. And we're going to fight. And we're going to fight. And when we fall, we're going to lean on the grace of God and it's going to pick us back up and we're going to fight some more. And we're going to slip and fall and the grace of God is going to pick us up and we're going to fight some more. And we're never going to stop fighting because we know we have the grace of God behind us. Our bazooka. That whenever the devil comes and says, Hi, you fell. You're bad. God doesn't love you. Say, excuse me? Don't you know grace of God? And don't you know that even before I did anything and while I was still the worst sinner in the whole wide world, that God still loved me? And don't you know that Romans 6, 14, you shall not have dominion over me, sin, because I'm not under law, but I'm under grace? Don't you know that? The devil feeds, like the devil thrives, I should say, on lies. You're bad because you sinned. Excuse me? I ain't under sin. I ain't under law, I'm under grace. You didn't know that? Well, I know that. That's why you have no power over me. Yeah, I fell, but I'm not under law. I'm under grace. And I'm going to get back up and I'm going to fight. If you're going to win the battle against lust, actually, if you're going to win anything in life, victory always begins in the mind. Victory always begins in the mind. And I'm telling you, I used to, I'm, I'm, I'm a Michael Jordan fan. Right? And Michael Jordan used to always talk about how Michael Jordan, greatest basketball player of all time, in case you don't know. Right? 92 Dream Team would crush the, the current Dream Team. That's, that's another topic. Michael Jordan used to always say, Michael Jordan used to always say that before games, he would visualize himself hitting the big shots. No one hit more big shots than Michael Jordan. He would visualize it. I don't know if that was nonsense. It's ridiculous. But then studies show that this stuff is proven that if you can't visualize, I'm sorry, if you can visualize yourself doing something, then you are like ex exponentially more likely to be able to accomplish it. I promise you. 
and I know this to be, I kind of know this to be true personally in small little ways, but then the studies prove it, that if you can't visualize yourself doing something, it's going to be much more difficult for you to actually accomplish it. I'm telling you, victory in anything begins in the mind. Victory over lust begins with you understanding what does God think of me? What does he think of me now when I'm good? What does he think of me now when I'm bad? What does he think of me when I don't care? What understanding how God looks at me? I told this story to uh, I told this story to some people sometime. Maybe you've heard me say this. When I uh, when I first like sometimes people ask me, okay, you give sermons, and sometimes people ask me a dumb question like, do you still get nervous before you give a sermon? That's a very dumb answer. I've been giving sermons for ten years. The answer, absolutely, I get nervous. I get more nervous, and people always look at me with that look of like, really? If right now, I won't do this, but if I were to take this t-shirt off and wring it, you'd get three or four drops of sweat. Okay, if you know how I go home, that's a beautiful thought, isn't it? Okay, who wants to give me a hug after the service is over? Okay. If you know how nervous I get, how sweaty I get, how, like, what it does to me standing up here and preaching the Word of God. I know I've been doing it for 10 years, 11 years almost, and I've spoken in front of hundreds and hundreds of people spoke in front of a, a patriarch one time, bishops, that's fine. Every time I preach, I get nervous. There's a good way to be nervous, and then there's like a bad way, and I would cross into the bad way. The bad way was bad. So one of the things that I started doing, and it's made a world of difference, is now before I give a sermon, I say the following. I say, God, if I give the best sermon ever in the whole wide world. Are you going to love me anymore? God says, no. I say, okay. If I give the worst sermon known to mankind, people throw stuff at me, walk out. Will you love me any less? He says, no. Okay, now I'm ready. Now I'm adjusted. Now I'm calibrated. God, if I go out and I never, ever, ever do this thing again, ever, which of course won't happen, but I never do this lust again. Are you going to love me anymore? No. If I fall into this today, tomorrow, the next day, the next day, the next day, are you going to love me any less? No. Okay. I got it. That's grace of God. Nothing you do can affect God's love for you. And like I said, the devil would like you to think that the more good you do, the more he'll love you. But that's false. Because the less good you do, he won't love you any less. Nothing you do, like how can you add to infinity? Math majors, infinity plus one equals? Infinity, okay. <laughs> and infinity plus a thousand equals? Infinity. Infinity minus a thousand. Infinity minus a hundred. It doesn't matter, it's infinity. God accepts you, period. God's name, I didn't bring the verse. So your name is engraved on the palm of his hand. God has a tattoo with your name. God has a tattoo with your name. And up there, no removal. Okay, no lasers up there. <laughs> Once it's on God's hand, that's it. For life. If you drive me crazy sometimes, you're there for life. And sometimes I want to throw you out the, the kingdom of heaven sometimes because you drive me crazy. But I never will because you're my son, my daughter. I love this passage from Romans 5. I'll read it. I don't need to explain it. It speaks for itself. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Won't explain it, just point out right at the bottom, Romans 5, 8. For God demonstrates his love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What more do you want? What more do you want than to know that on your ugliest 
ugliest, ugliest day. Your ugliest day. God loved you infinitely. On your ugliest. Not on your makeup days. Not on your pretty do your hair days. On your ugly. Just got out of bed. Stanky breath. Hair a hundred different directions. On that day, God loves you. Infinitely loves you. What more do you want? Like what can I say on top of that? Don't doubt your standing in God. I think of the prodigal son who was at an ugly day and the father loved him. And because the son, in his mind, victory begins in the mind, said to himself in his mind, I'm not doing very good here on my sanctification, but where is my standing with my father? Hmm. And the devil was surely throwing arrows at him. No, the father won't accept you. No, you're, you're, you're too bad. The father, no, he doesn't love you. No, 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 the father, no, you're too dirty. And the son said, hmm, you know what? I think that no matter how dirty I am, that he still accepts me. And because he had that realization, he's able to pick himself up out of the mud and go back to the father. Does that mean he never made a mistake again? No. But his standing was never affected. That's the Bible. Y'all know this song, East to West? Okay, song you may hear on the radio. I love this one part in it. That speaks to something that maybe you, you, you go through as well. It says, I start the day the war begins. Endless reminding of my sin. Time and time again your truth is drowned out by the storm I'm in. Today I feel like I'm just one mistake away from you leaving me this way. That's the sad part. Then it goes up and says, Jesus show me just how far the east is from the west. Okay. If our music team was here, we would have, but they're not here today. So. I've lived this and you've lived this. I've lived this and you've lived this. Devil tells you, not today. No, not after what you did today. Wait, when was the last time you went to church? You haven't been to church in how long? You can go, you can go back to church. You know what people are going to say? You know what people are going to look at you? Even if they don't say it, they're going to be thinking it. Devil loves. But that ain't, that ain't truth. Truth is God accepts you. Period. No ifs, ands, buts about it. Doesn't about, it's not about you. It doesn't have anything to do with whether you fasted this morning or prayed this morning. We're going to talk about those things because I want you to do them. But first, little orphan Annie, you need to know your mind. And your name is my name. And as long as my name is on you, it's there forever. I want to leave you guys with this verse that shows you how that grace is connected to our battle with lust. Remember before I said talk to God in those moments? Hebrews 4, verse 15 to 16. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are. Meaning that Jesus faced every desire that we face. Every desire and every temptation. Don't be fooled. Don't fool yourself into thinking that he didn't. Don't fool yourself into thinking that he was some superhuman who never felt any of the desires and lusts that you did. He went through every single one of them. That's what the Bible says. Was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may, find, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We said the name of our church right here, we said is the well. Because the well is an ordinary place where we go to and we experience an extraordinary God who transforms our lives just like he did for the Samaritan woman. I'm saying, let us come therefore boldly to the well of grace. Throne makes it sound too big. Let's make it a well. We're going to come to the well of grace and we're going to drink. And when we're tempted, we're going to run to that well. And we're not going to be ashamed. We're going to run and say, God, I feel really, really tempted right now. I'm, I'm thinking about this. And I'm telling you, you may do that and you may still fall. But that's still a win. You may go to the well and still fall in the sin. That's still a win. We're going to go and we're going to run to that well. We're going to drink from that well. And we're going to hug that well. And when we get far from that well, we're going to say, you know what? I haven't been to the well in a few hours. I need to go back to the well. I need to run and stay close to the well. And when I'm driving in my car to a place where I know there's stuff, I'm going to lift up my eyes to the well and I'm going to say, Lord, just give me from your grace. Help me in my time of need. We're going to run to that well. And like I said, I don't care if any difference in the amount of times that you fall this week, I don't care. But make sure that you run to the well of grace.
Let's all pray this week. Let's thank God for His grace. But let's rely on His grace and trust in His grace to be there to help us in our time of need. Let's stand for a prayer, please. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Lord, we thank you from the depth of our heart, Lord, for your grace, which is never-ending and so abundant towards us. And you know, Lord, how we need every single drop of that grace. The number of times, Lord, we've sinned and we've fallen and fallen and fallen, Lord. Lord, we need, sometimes it feels like if the ocean was full of your grace, it wouldn't be enough to cover us. But we know, Lord, that's just lie from the devil. We know, Lord, that you love us so much and your greatest desire is to see us get back on our feet, come home to the Father's table, to eat and drink from your table, and to be swimming in your grace, and living in it, not letting the devil to, to knock us down with his funny little temptations and, and his lies. Lord, I pray that you would protect all of our minds, even if our bodies are impure, Lord, and even if our, our, our words are impure, or our thoughts are impure, or any of those things, Lord, protect our way of thinking about your grace. And give us to be seeing the reality, Lord, and seeing the truth and not listening to the lies the devil tells us. Help us to come boldly to your throne of grace, Lord, that we may find help and find mercy to help us in the time of need. Help every single person who's standing here. Lord, you know the secret desires of their hearts. And you know the things which are out of their control. Lord, we stand like Moses before the Red Sea. And we say, Lord, we can't. Like nothing we can do. Like we tried everything we could to move this Red Sea, Lord, but we can't. But we trust, Lord, that you are with us and you will part the Red Sea. We rely on you. We trust in you. We love you with all of our hearts, Lord. You're the best, Lord, and we love you so much. Accept all the prayers which were said here, Lord, especially the silent prayers of people's hearts. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, with the intercessions and prayers of all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Through Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.